We know from science that a creative life is a life with diffused thinking, space to think, that's linked to daily flourishing. We also know that men, and I interviewed in 17 countries, men take up almost twice as much leisure time as women. The through line in this work and fair play is 100% gender. Because what it's about is that the concept that you and I have talked about before, Michelle, which is how society views and values women's and men's time. Men's time is already protected. We guard men's time as if it's diamonds, if it's finite. All you had to do was call 50 schools, which I did in America. I called 50 schools and said, what's the deal? Why do you always call women first? And believe me, the answers you get are really revealing. Well, men don't pick up. We wouldn't want to bother them, right? We say things in our society like breastfeeding is free when it's really 1,800 hours a year. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a full-time job. We now know that when women enter male professions, salaries automatically come down. So what we've been telling women since birth and all these cultural messages is that your time is worthless. So then what happens is, if your time is worthless, when really, spoiler alert, time is our most valuable currency in a capitalist patriarchy, what we're doing is we're conditioned to give our way our most valuable asset for free to others. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Michelle King, and this week, Kelly is away. And yes, I know that she owes me. Don't worry, I'll collect. But for now, it's just me, and you're listening to The Fix. It's a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Before we start, I just want to take a minute to say a massive thank you to all of you, our incredible listeners and followers. Every week we get thousands of downloads and we've got about 150,000 and it's all thanks to you. So I want to hear from you. I want to get to know what's on your mind. So please send me an email with any questions you might have, either for me or for Kelly, and I'm going to dedicate an entire episode to answering them. My email is michelle at michellepking.com. So please just send over your questions or comments, and I'll make sure to feature them on the show. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Today on the show, my dear friend Eve Rodsky is joining us. Eve has actually been featured on The Fix before, where she came to discuss her New York Times bestselling book, Fair Play. And now today, Eve is back again to discuss her second book entitled Unicorn Space, which is all about making time for your creative pursuits. As a researcher, I was really intrigued with Eve's idea that men and women have different opportunities to pursue creative interests. This idea makes a lot of sense. Women disproportionately undertake domestic chores and childcare requirements, which leaves very little time to pursue interests outside of work and home life. For example, a study by LifeSearch found that among working women, half still say they do the majority of household chores versus one in four, about 25% of all working men. On average, women spend 7.6 hours on housework a week, which is almost the equivalent to a typical working day on top of their paid job. But this is only half the story. Yes, women have less time to be creative and innovative, but workplaces in particular devalue women's creativity. A 2015 academic study published in the Journal of Psychological Science finds that creativity itself is gendered. The paper states that organizations increasingly reward those who are seen as true innovators, 
Surveys of the top business executives have identified creative thinking as the ability valued most in employees and one of the most important skills for the future. However, stereotypical expectations of men and women's creativity shape how creativity is judged and acknowledged. This paper finds that creativity itself is more strongly associated with stereotypically masculine characteristics, and that a man's work is deemed to be more creative than a woman's. The research also finds that men's ideas are often deemed more ingenious than women's, even when it's on the same topic. In particular, supervisors assess their female employees as less creative, even when they're exhibiting more of the stereotypically masculine behaviors associated with creativity compared to men. Creativity is gendered. We value men's creative time, ideas, and outputs more than women's. Therefore, it's no surprise that we make more time for men to be creative because we believe it's more valuable. This is inequality. The belief that men and masculinity are somehow more valuable, more creative, and more innovative than women and femininity. And it plays out in all aspects of life, even how we spend our creative time, as Eve explains. I couldn't ignore the data. And what the data was showing me when I started to interview for Fair Play was that women were telling me two things that felt like a very deadly combination that they felt completely overwhelmed, but also really bored. And that combination of overwhelm, this idea that I'm so overwhelmed, I'm never not touched. There's nobody, not ever in my space. There's someone always on me, but I feel incredibly lonely. I don't you know who I am anymore. Nobody asked me my name. All those dreams that I had uh, seemed to have gone up in flames. Those were all messages I was hearing and I felt like I couldn't ignore them. So a unicorn space, the active pursuit of what makes you you, the active pursuit of things that make you come alive, sustained attention for things you love. All of these things are highly subversive. So the idea of renaming was really important to me because people were looking at things they did outside of their roles. So the three Ps, parenting, partnering, professionalizing, or whatever you want to call it, being a professional And by that, I mean anybody who's in paid work or unpaid work as a stay-at-home parent. Those three Ps were allowable. People said, I have permission to be those things, but I have no permission to be unavailable for my roles outside of those things. So the idea of a unicorn space is this idea of taking up space, sustained attention, things that we're not often given for ourselves. But the issue about space, and it became even more relevant to me during the pandemic where women were reporting and sending me pictures of themselves in bathtubs with laptops and a toddler on their lap where their partner was claiming the good space, quote unquote, in their home, this idea of space became really important. Then on top of it, a lot of people, when they think about space to create and ideate and tinker, they were calling it white space. But as I interviewed Black colleagues, Black friends, the idea of a white space sounded like a place that they couldn't access. So then I stopped liking the word white space. What's your white space? When do you have any white space? So the idea of a unicorn space was a mythical equine, something really beautiful and magical when you access it, but it doesn't exist until you can reclaim it or or conjure it like a spell. And so that's how unicorn space ended up replacing the word creativity to me, where people were saying, I'm not creative. It was replacing the word hobby for me because people were associating hobby with infrequency. It was replacing the word passion project 
because a lot of people said they didn't have passions. It was replacing vanity projects, side hustle, all these other words that were not what I'm talking about, which is these active pursuits that um, are linked to our mental health, our longevity, and our daily flourishing. You still got to breathe polluted air, right? We don't want to not breathe. We are breathing polluted air. This is not something that is given to us, but we can not be complicit in our own oppression. We can be complicit in our own power. I mean, and not complicit, I would say, I guess we can, we can help each other claim our own power when we recognize that this permission to be unavailable is very, very important. It's highly important to believe that we have a permission to be unavailable. I spoke to this woman as part of my research, and she said to me, unavailability is literally tied to my identity. The idea like that I wouldn't be available, like when you say that, it hits me in my identity because being available has been my superpower. I wouldn't even know who I was if I wasn't available. I'd be a bad mother. I'd be a bad employee. I'd be a bad partner. Like I pride myself on always having my phone on, of letting everybody interrupt me, of being there for everybody. These are not easy concepts. We're really digging deeper here to say what a societal trip that has, it has done to women, and especially women in caretaking roles, that has left us feeling that we cannot be unavailable from those roles. Women make up more than half of the labor force, yet they remain underrepresented in leadership positions. Most leaders today are required to be innovative, creative, independent, and daring, qualities that are stereotypically associated more with men. This has tremendous impact on the way we devalue women creators. For example, the 2019 research study published in the Semantic Scholar finds that women participate in cultural activities like art, music, and literature, at higher rates than men. Yet, as creative professionals, their career achievements tend to lag behind men's. Using an exhaustive data set comprising of over 250,000 songs produced between 1995 and 2000, this research found that female artists create significantly more novel songs compared to their male counterparts. These results suggest that social factors rather than differences in pure raw ability, are responsible for gender disparities in creative production. Simply put, women might produce more novel and creative music, but they're not valued in the same way as men. Here Eve shares more on how workplaces can value women creators. Well, first I'll start with workplaces. I mean, they are the opposite of unicorn spaces. They are um, these open plan models. I shudder to think of what my workplace was like. And I think a lot of people don't want to go back to those places because you feel, you've talked about this, Michelle, you know, you feel monitored, you're being tracked. I remember I couldn't even get up to, to go to the bathroom without putting in my Slack thing. Hey, I'm getting up from my desk. It's the opposite of unicorn space. So I actually think that if people, corporations really want people to come back to offices, which I think they do then they have to become unicorn spaces. And what I mean by that, and this is the same thing that we can do, it's the same. It's really this paradigm of understanding that when people were telling me they were self-actualized in their creativity, whether it's writing the fix, whether it's crocheting Harry Potter dolls, whether it's the 67-year-old woman who I love so much who's now 
started race car driving at, fi- at 56 and now in 11 years is one of the top rally car racers in the world. She's in Antarctica right now. Shout out to you, Renee. The cycle is the three C's I talk about in the book, which are the power and curiosity, the power and connection, and the power and completion. So there's a cycle of creativity that I saw in people. And often there was an iron in the fire of all three. So what I mean by that is if a corporation is a unicorn space, they would look at themselves as a physical space for curiosity, for connection, and for completion. And if I was a manager, I would say, well, I would rather prioritize curiosity and connection. So I'd have lots of hubs and places for people to come in if they want to ideate or collaborate. But I would recognize that third C of completion is probably best done somewhere else. So maybe you have completion hubs or you say to people, just go home so you can complete on your own at your home. That's the hybrid workplace. But I would look at the spaces as a place for how do people get curious? How do they connect with others? And how do they actually complete the projects they need to get done? That's the same paradigm for us as well. We can start by getting curious, Michelle. Passion, hobby, vanity project, side hustle. We need to retire those words and say curiosity is our North Star. According to a Harvard Business Review article, the number one enemy of creativity is the fear of failure. The article states that creative people tend to think a little differently about failure compared to how most of us think about it. Creative people tend to think of failure as learning. Failures are really treated as data. They're information that creative people use to improve or adapt their approach. But when individuals don't view failure in this way, they tend to internalize it. And this is true when it comes to even potential failure. So saying something like, I'm not going to be any good at something, disempowers you to be creative. Here Eve shares how we can tackle the fear of failure. I was surprised in my data, in my interviews, I thought I would get most people who said to me, I just don't know what it is anymore. And I did, right? I had a friend who said to me, Eve, the only thing I'm curious about is scrolling Venmo to see what my friends spend money on, right? I mean, it was, it. I don't have curiosities. I'm curious about why my child's, my baby's poop is yellow. Like I don't have the room for curiosity. So there's definitely those people, 100%. I have books and books of moleskins of those interviews. But What I was surprised by was how many people were actually saying, actually, I do know what I love. I do know what brings me sustained attention and joy. I do know how I get into a flow state. I do know that when I'm in my crocheting group, time stands still or goes so fast. Or I know that when I'm on stage with my band, it's the best hour of my day. But what was happening on on that side was that even the people who had curiosity were getting tripped up with that last C, that completion C. Because especially if you've been good at something before, it can't, completion can be very triggering because it's not perfection, but then what is it? So then you think about completion. I used to dance. I have like a bone spur, a bunion. My whole left foot is completely messed up. Like my right toe is numb. I don't know what's happening with me. And so the idea of ever being able to dance the same way I danced before, that will never happen again. And so having to be not excellent requires some deep work. The other thing I think we want to talk about with completion is that 
it's really important to recognize that completion can look different for everybody. I had a woman who said to me, I don't want to start a podcast because I know nobody will download it. But what if we looked at completion as just the courage to be curious about a subject, reach out to a guest with a microphone and actually edit that thing and just upload it somewhere? Like that to me is a beautiful completion, but it it is hard because we have been conditioned to believe as women that before we release anything into the world, it has to be excellent. The other day, I saw a post from Eve on Instagram and it said something like, if you don't make space for your creativity or value your own time, then you're complicit in your own oppression. At first I was like, really? But then it made sense. When we buy into the belief that a woman's time is less valuable than a man's and we accept this in our own homes, we're accepting and participating in a system of inequality that serves to devalue women and their creative aspirations. We know from science that a creative life is a life with diffused thinking, space to think, that's linked to daily flourishing. We also know that men, and I interviewed in 17 countries, men take up almost twice as much leisure time as women. The through line in this work and fair play is 100% gendered. Because what it's about is that the concept that you and I have talked about before, Michelle, which is how society views and values women's and men's time. Men's time is already protected. We guard men's time as if it's diamonds, if it's finite. All you had to do was call 50 schools, which I did in America. I called 50 schools and said, what's the deal? Why do you always call women first? And believe me, the answers you get are really revealing. Well, men don't pick up. We wouldn't want to bother them, right? We say things in our society like breastfeeding is free when it's really 1,800 hours a year. It's it's actually a full-time job. We now know that when women enter male professions, salaries automatically come down. So what we've been telling women since birth and all these cultural messages is that your time is worthless. So then what happens is, If your time is worthless, when really, spoiler alert, time is our most valuable currency in a capitalist patriarchy, what we're doing is we're conditioned to give our way our most valuable asset for free to others. And then that's really helpful to societies that are built on the backs of that time, that unpaid labor. And so it's a highly gendered issue, time, and how we spend it. And so what unicorn space really is, it's a, it's a, creative plan. It's a lot of popcorn uh, with some spinach, but the spinach is understanding that until we really, really understand that women have no time choice, that we don't make our own time decisions, then we're never going to get to live creative, self-actualized, fulfilled lives. And even I was thinking about myself. Last week, we had free COVID tests that were released in America. Six text chains sent them to me. And all six text chains, I responded, Are men ordering these texts? Are men ordering these texts? I kept writing that. Are men ordering these texts? And then everyone's like, gotcha. Sorry, you got us again. We didn't even think about it. Yes, this hour of our time was hijacked to order these COVID tests. We didn't even think that, yes, we were supposed to use our time differently in this hour. And because this link came in, we all stopped what we were doing and changed the decision of how we spend our time. And I'm sorry that I'm one of those weird people that keeps calling it out, but Michelle, you are too. So I like to be in your company. 
Some of you may know this and some of you may not, but I'm actually in the process of writing my second book, which will be out next September with HarperCollins. And I absolutely love the process of writing between researching, writing, editing my own work. It's just a ton of hours, a ton of time. It's a huge investment and I absolutely love it. But I have to recognize that it comes at a massive cost to my family and to my friends in terms of my energy, my time, my attention. And one of the things I really struggle with is guilt, the guilt of pursuing something that fills me up. And I know I'm not alone. I know this is a challenge that a lot of women face and particularly working mothers. So here Eve's going to share with us how we can deal with this challenge. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I think, again, it's always there and our thoughts are our thoughts. We can switch the passive thoughts (laughs) where they just come into our brain and we receive them with actually talking back to ourselves in a way that's more intentional. And my colleague, Dr. Cheryl Gonzalez-Ziegler, she wrote a book called Mommy Burnout. I like to talk to her a lot as a psychologist since obviously I'm a lawyer uh, and an organizational manager. So I want to make sure that the scholarship aligns. And I remember when we were talking about guilt and shame, I was talking about the practice of I light a candle now that I actively have to blow out if I'm giving up my time for myself, right? So I've, I've created this ritual. I always have a candle burning now when I'm in a flow state like this, when I'm on a podcast, when I'm writing. So that candle burning reminds me that that's my time and that I have to actually blow it out when I'm done, as opposed to being interrupted. If that candle's still burning, I protect that boundary. But I thought it was so helpful what she's helped me do over the years. And I I talk a lot about how this works in unicorn space. And that is just the simple reframe. I started a guilt and shame notebook, or you can do this on a post-it. Post-its are great for this as well, where you have a guilt thought. And that is say, I, I feel guilty because I'm not putting Anna to bed tonight to write, right? That's my daughter. So you write down, I feel guilty because I'm not putting Anna to bed tonight. You cross out, I feel guilty because, and you insert, I made that decision because. It's really changed my life. So now what I say, I feel guilty because it's happening to me tonight. I feel guilty because I'm not putting Anna to bed. I haven't seen my kids that much. I've been sort of on this virtual book tour. I'm not putting Anna to bed tonight or Zach or Ben. They may be up when I get home because they stay up later, but I'm definitely not putting Anna to bed tonight. And so instead of saying that and going off on that tangent, I've now said to myself this morning, I'm I'm making the decision not to put Anna to bed tonight because my friend Rebecca makes me really happy. She fills my cup. She allows me to bat ideas off her. If I'm nervous, she's a great spiritual friend for helping me plan things. I'm going to make that decision not to put Anna to bed because I want to see Rebecca. And that also is such an easier thing to communicate with your kids. Oh, Anna, I feel so guilty because I'm not going to see you. And I love mommy loves you. No, it's Anna. I love you so much. I'm making the decision not to put you to bed tonight because mommy needs friends just like you do. You know how you look for Daniela every time you walk into your playground to make you feel safe? Well, mommy needs her friends too to make her feel safe. And that's it. I love this reframe from Eve. It's such a simple action that all individuals can take to revalue women's time. I think what this episode has highlighted for me is that we don't just devalue women's time. We devalue women's ideas, creative interests, creative outputs, and in doing so, we devalue women. We convince women that they're not worthy of pursuing what sets their soul on fire. 
And this is particularly true for working mothers. But valuing women's time in the same way as men's also serves to benefit men. Men's ability to financially support their family is often equated with their identity and self-worth. Living up to this requires that men not only have a job, but that they conform to the ideal worker image by working excessive hours so they can advance. This is the expectation that all of us actually hold for men, and it limits men's freedom to explore their identities and creative interests outside of work. A 2016 study found that men are better able to accommodate their dual identities when their wives work, because they get to define success outside of just that breadwinner role. Sharing the burden to provide for the family frees men up to rethink their identity and explore their interests outside of work. This is the freedom to be yourself that so many individuals want, but it only comes from valuing each other's time, contributions, and creativity in an equitable way. A quick one before you go, if you love our podcast and you'd like a lot more of it, then please hit subscribe now and you can also leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. This support means so much to us and it helps keep the podcast going. Thank you for tuning into our episode today. And if you're interested in maybe partnering with us or even being a guest on the show, then you can reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. And while you're there, you can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.